afternoon. My name is Kayla Rosen, and I'm a Departmental Analyst in the Community Engagement and Finance Division at the Michigan Department of Treasury. I'm part of the team that reviews all of the defined benefit retirement system reporting. I lead Treasury's fiscally ready communities training and work with local governments to provide technical support. This upcoming Thursday, we have our Fiscally Ready Communities Financial Best Practice webinar at 10 a.m. Veronica is gonna post the link in the chat if you would like to register. We wanted to thank you for joining us today for our 11th webinar in the Tools and Resources for Local Government series, formerly known as the COVID-19 Updates and Resources for Local Governments webinar. Before we begin, I would like to go through a few details. Today's webinar has a question and answer feature. To access this feature, please click on the Q&A button and type your question and then press send. We request that you use this feature to ask your questions that we will use at the Q&A portion at the end of the webinar. Please only use this feature to ask questions for our presenters. There may be a lot of questions today, so please wait until the presenters are done with their presentation before asking a question about that topic, as many of your questions will be answered in the material covered. Please note that we will not be able to get to all of the questions asked, but we'll try our best to cover as many as possible. Over the past year, we have held webinars that have covered a diverse set of topics important to local governments. To view previous recorded webinars and other resources, please visit the Treasury webinar page. This link will also be posted in the chat. Treasury's, or today's webinar will be recorded and emailed to all of the registrants within 24 hours, including a copy of today's PowerPoint slides, and they will also be recorded and posted on Treasury's website. If you would like to follow along with your own version of today's PowerPoint, a link will be posted in the chat for you to download. As you exit the presentation today, you will be asked to complete a survey. Please take the time to do so as this feedback is important as we continue to develop these webinars. I would now like to introduce Heather Frick. Heather is the Director of the Bureau of Local Government and School Services here at the Michigan Department of Treasury. She will be our MC for today. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tools and Resources for Local Government webinar series. My name is Heather Frick and I am the Director of the Bureau of Local Government and School Services with the Michigan Department of Treasury. We are pleased to be able to collaborate with the Michigan Municipal League, the Michigan Association of Counties, the Michigan Townships Association, and the County Road Association of Michigan to host our 11th joint webinar of this series. Included in today's presentation will be updates on the CARES Act grants, financially distressed cities, village and townships grants, better known as FDCVT, recreational marijuana payments, and the American Rescue Plan. We are also happy to have Deputy Chief Security Officer for the Michigan Department of Technology Management and Budget, DTMB, here with us today to share important information related to cybersecurity. It is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Eric Busis, Chief Economist and Director of the Office of Revenue and Tax Analysis at the Michigan Department of Treasury. Eric will start us off today with a Treasury update. I will hand it over to Eric at this time. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you again this afternoon. Um, so for the agenda today, um, for my presentation, uh, we've got four areas uh, that we're going to cover. Um, this is highlighted on the next slide. Um, first off, we're going to start with the CARES Act grant program um, and an update on how those programs are progressing. Um, we're going to have a 
discussion on the FDCVT program. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about recreational marijuana payments and the American Rescue Plan, uh, which I know everybody uh, is eager for information on. So next slide. So the uh, three CARES Act grant programs that were administered uh, by the Department of Treasury for local governments, I'm happy to uh, announce that those are uh, nearing completion. Um, those, these three programs were certainly difficult uh, for local governments as well as from the administrative side. Um, so we wanted to provide an update on where we are on these three key programs. Uh, the first responder hazard pay premiums program um, is the one that's most near nearing completion. Um, we've made payments to 740 applicants and uh, supported payments to approximately uh, 37,500 first responders. Uh, under the uh, federal subrecipient monitoring, um, we've selected 97 applications for further audit. Um, these units were all uh, contacted uh, by Treasury staff and some of the, the contractors that have been helping us from Riemann. Um, the audits are nearly complete and we still have seven that are unfinished. Um, the information and what's outstanding um, should be well known and documented by those seven units of government. So if you haven't heard from us, um, you were not sub selected for subrecipient monitoring um, and the vast majority of those who were selected for federal audit um, have complied and responded. Uh, and we appreciate your uh, response and our and support in helping us close out this grant program and get it near completion. Um, the second program is the public safety public health payroll reimbursement program. Um, we are also nearing completion with this program. Um, of the 492 awards, uh, 65 were selected for further subrecipient monitoring. We have a, a handful of those uh, applications that are still in audit. So I know um, many of these recipients are anxiously awaiting uh, receiving their final payments. So as you may recall, we did an initial payment of 50% of the application amount um, to all of those eligible applicants. Um, after that 50% payment, um, we had $200 million in total funding that was available. So we the last uh, remaining payment amounts, um, we need to get all of the audits completed and all of the reviews done before we can issue those payments. I'm happy to announce that um, as of this morning, we posted an updated payment estimate online uh, for applicant review. So we're requesting um, that units of government or applicants of this uh, grant program go online and review the payment information uh, that's listed there. Um, because this is prorated to $200 million, every change for one applicant 
impacts all of the other uh, recipients of the grant program. So we're hoping that uh, after review and after we close out the, the handful of uh, final subrecipient monitoring audits, uh, we will be ready to issue the final payments. Um, the last CARES Act grant program that we administered is the Coronavirus Relief Local Government Grants. Um, this subrecipient monitoring process is still underway. Uh, we made payments to 688 local units of government. Uh, 72 applications were selected for further monitoring and audit. Um, those uh, applicants likely received emails and uh, contact uh, from our audit team. Um, preliminary reviews on many of those are complete and the audits are progressing. Uh, we do have eight recipients that have not responded yet, um, and we will be working with the associations and others uh, to try to help close out all of these uh, grant programs. Um, I certainly appreciate the patience and uh, efforts in getting these closed out. Uh, as I mentioned, they were uh, pretty difficult uh, from an administrative and uh, compliance standpoint. So really appreciate the support and help uh, that local governments have shown us to help us get these grant programs across the finish line. The next uh, slide uh, looks at the FDCVT program. Uh, so this is a grant program that's been available for a few years now. Um, this is open to cities, villages, and townships uh, that are experience, experiencing at least one condition of a probable financial distress as outlined in the Local Financial Stability and Choice Act. Um, there's a lot more information about this grant program, including the application um, and other um, eligibility standards on our website at michigan.gov slash revenue sharing. Um, there's been a total of $2.5 million in funding that has been already appropriated for fiscal year 2021. Uh, so we've issued press releases and you should have seen uh, news on this grant program that was released through the local government uh, email listserv. Uh, but we wanted to remind uh, cities, villages and townships that if you're interested in applying, um, you need to get your application submitted um, by 11.59 p.m. on Monday, May 17th of 2021. Um, so like I mentioned, there's a lot more information in the application on our website at michigan.gov slash revenue sharing. We also wanted to provide an update on um, the adult use marijuana payments that went out uh, in the last month. So we've issued 9.9 .9 million uh, in payments to counties, cities, villages, and townships. Um, just a note on the money that was received, the local units can use these payments as general purpose revenue. Um, and there's also guidance that the excise tax uh, distribution, distributions should be recorded in account 439 within the general fund. Um, a couple other notes on these payments. Um, the distributions that went out um, were the total amount available under the statute um, that was received during state fiscal year 2020. Um, 
that was based on the number of active licenses as of uh, September 30th. Um, and we're distributing under the statute uh, all of the money that's left in the fund from the excise tax, as well as any leftover fees that were uh, collected and in excess of the needed uh, funding for uh, distribution, or sorry, for administration under the act. Uh, a couple notes on this initial year distributions. Um, so each county, city, village, or township uh, received about $28,000 um, per license in their um, jurisdiction. Um, we wanted to just let people know that you know this initial year of distribution may not be reflective of future payments. So as you're budgeting for this in the future, um, we do expect these payments to be issued annually uh, at the end of the state fiscal year during book closing. Um, and there are a couple things in this first year that we think boosted um, the amount of distribution. So first off, um, there was about $45 million left over um, for distribution after the administrative costs in the fund. Um, that amount this year was in excess of the excise tax that was collected. Uh, so there was some leftover fee revenue that was uh, available for distribution and went out under the formula. Additionally, in this first year, um, there was a $20 million distribution for research um, that didn't take effect this year, but will begin next year and the following year. So for the next two years, um, we expect $20 million to go off the top for research, um, which would, you know, in this case, uh, for this past fiscal year, we had 45 million overall. Um, you take 20 million off of that, uh, and the distributions would be nearly, nearly half of, of that amount. Um, the other point to make here on the excise tax is it is a 10% tax on the purchase price of adult use marijuana. Um, and prices are dropping substantially. Um, in the first year, supply was very tight. There was not a lot of uh, readily available supply uh, for purchase. Um, and people were ramping up their production of marijuana. This is not uh, unique to Michigan. Uh, we've seen this among many other states who have implemented. But supply is really starting to come online and prices are dropping as a result of that. You know, anything that's you know, produced here in Michigan has to be sold here in Michigan. So it's uh, pretty basic economics that you know, as the supply comes online, we're gonna see the price drop substantially. So just since uh, September 30th of 2020, uh, the price per ounce was about $400 an ounce. Already we've seen that drop to about $300 an ounce. Uh, as of the most recent data a couple of weeks ago. So it's a 25% drop uh, in just the last couple months. We expect that trend to continue. So between the dropping price, the additional research off the top, we do just wanna you know, let people know that when they're budgeting for the future, uh, the total revenue uh, may not uh, continue to match um, 
you know, the expansion of licenses. Um, so there's another, you know, for counties uh, who are uh, listening in, um, there is a distribution for the Michigan Transportation Fund uh, under the statute, and that will apply uh, and flow directly through the MTF formula. Um, it is currently pending appropriation that was uh, released in the governor's executive budget um, in a fiscal year 20 request. So um, that funding is uh, not available yet. Um, and um, I think I saw a question go by on applying for that funding. Uh, that will go uh, through the formula like any other MTF uh, revenue. So now for the, the last uh, item on the agenda, uh, the American Rescue Plan Act. So if you can go to the next slide. Um, as you've likely heard from the news and media, um, there's uh, a lot of uh, additional federal stimulus coming to the state through the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, there's a number of different channels, but the one that is most applicable to Michigan local units of government um, is the state and local fiscal recovery appropriation. So this is an appropriation uh, from the federal government and an allocation of $350 billion. Um, that is currently split um, for $219 billion in state fiscal recovery, uh, which is going to be allocated to states, territories, and tribal governments. And then local fiscal recovery, um, which is $130 billion, uh, which is going to be allocated to counties, uh, entitlement metropolitan cities, and non-entitlement local governments. So for this presentation, I want to focus just on uh, the left-hand side of this, um, and we'll dig into that on the next slide. So under the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, there are three main uh, distributions for local units of government from this local fiscal recovery. Um, there's an, an allocation to entitlement metropolitan cities. Uh, this is based on whether uh, these communities are uh, entitled to uh, distributions under the Community Development Block Grant Entitlement Formula. Uh, so under the current estimates, there are 38 metropolitan cities um, these cities will receive uh, direct payments from U.S. Treasury. Their uh, allocations are specified in the American Rescue Plan Act um, and, and spelled out uh, directly from that legislation. Uh, the middle group is all of the non-entitlement local governments. Um, these are going to be uh, municipalities as defined by the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, these, this funding is going to flow through the state. Uh, each state will receive this funding and have a certain amount of days um, with a couple extensions allowable uh, to send this to local units of government. Um, so this is approximately at a federal level, uh, $19.53 billion uh, going through this channel. Uh, and then the final channel is uh, counties. Uh, they will also be receiving an allocation uh, directly from the federal government. So 
the majority of local governments in Michigan will receive funding through this middle allocation of non-entitlement local governments. Um, there's about, uh, in the estimates we've seen about 1400 local units of government that will be eligible, uh, but there's a lot that we don't know. Um, we do know that the allocations from the states to all of these non-entitlement communities um, need to be done uh, based on population. Uh, and we also know that there's a cap uh, in the amount that we can send these non-entitlement local governments of 75% of the most recent budget as of January 27, 2020. So that's, it, you know, the amount of federal funding that you receive cannot be in excess of essentially your pre-pandemic budget. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know about how that's exactly going to be administered. Um, so we'll, we'll jump to the next slide and talk a little bit more about what we do know uh, before we jump into exactly what what's still um, we're awaiting federal guidance on and what we don't know. So the, the American Rescue Plan Act does provide for certain allowable uses. So much like the CARES Act funding was not a uh, general purpose and had specific um, allocation or sorry, sp specific uh, restrictions around what the allowable uses were, um, the American Rescue Plan Act will have a very similar uh, structure. Although the allowable uses are defined in the act a little different. So the allowable uses in the act are um, to respond to public health emergencies or negative economic impacts, including assistance to households, small businesses, nonprofits, and affected industries like tourism, travel, and hospitality. Um, you know, local governments can also use this funding uh, to provide pay premiums to essential workers. Um, there are a number of caps, both in per hour cap and uh, per worker cap uh, defined in the act. Um, the next one is probably the one that we, we have the, the least amount of information on at this point, um, but it's we can use this money to provide government services to the extent of revenue lost. Um, and that's kind of a high level summary of what's in the act. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns about how exactly uh, we can calculate that revenue lost. Uh, and then the final one that uh, is specifically stated in the act is um, an allowable use to uh, make necessary, necessary investments in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. And uh, local units of government are also prohibited from using the funds for pension contributions. So all of the, the things that I mentioned there um, are preliminary and subject to further US Treasury in interpretation and guidance, uh, similar to what we had uh, in the CARES Act. Um, so th the next slide just talks a little bit about what we don't know. Um, and there's a lot that we don't know. So we don't know how much each individual unit of government is going to receive, either from the county allocation, the entitlement allocation, or um, the, the non-entitlement allocation. 
So there are a lot of estimates floating around out there. Um, you know, we, I know Cranes Business Detroit put up a database with all of the amounts that units of government were going to get. Um, I've seen a number of uh, national organizations put out that uh, information. Federal funds information for states put out that uh, per unit allocation and the Senate Fiscal Agency republished that recently. Um, but as far as I can tell, we've, we've been in contact with many of our partners and the majority of these estimates all were released by the Congressional Oversight Committee. We've talked to some of our national partners about things that we've seen in those estimates and things that didn't necessarily make sense with the way that we were interpreting the law. Um, and we just want to be very clear that those are estimates released by Congress. The official numbers will come from the US Treasury Department for the county and the entitlement community uh, allocations. Um, and the non-entitlement communities um, are subject further to a little bit more uh, state guidance and state uh, selection of the exact population data used. Um, currently in the estimates, um, we've heard from a lot of villages. Um, they're not included in the federal estimates that were released. Um, I don't believe that will be the, the case in the final distributions, um, but you know we need to know more from US Treasury about how this act will be interpreted. So you know at this point, I wouldn't read too much into a lot of the estimates that are out there for how much local governments you know by unit could be receiving. The other very significant disclaimer on all of these estimates is none of them account for, the, uh, the restriction and cap on the 75% of the budget as of January 27, 2020. So none of the estimates attempt to take that cap into account. So um, we're also not sure how that cap will be calculated, whether that's going to be uh, just 75% of uh, the general fund budget or total budget or how that cap will be uh, implemented and administered. Um, the other thing that, you know, other key things that we're not sure exactly how uh, U.S. Treasury will administer this uh, relates to how we will calculate the eligible revenue losses. Is that overall or by tax type? Um, is that the actual drop or compared to forecast? Um, so, you know, as you can see, there's a lot that we don't know um, and it's going to require people in, in local government to be cautious um, and continue to pay attention to uh, further guidance coming out of Washington, D.C. and uh, state government. Um, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rod Taylor to talk a little bit about what we do know and, and how local governments can prepare. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, next slide, please. As Eric mentioned, at this point, there's a lot of information that we don't know the answer for. And we understand that uh, locals are very interested in hearing more about this. So Treasury is going to be doing two things. One is that we will place in the chat a survey 
so that we can capture some of the questions that you have so that we can hopefully use that information to either build a uh, frequently asked questions uh, and or for another webinar. Just like we did during the CARES Act rollout, we held specific webinars on these types of topics. And we'll anticipate that as we gain more information, we'll do a webinar just on the American Recovery Act. In the meantime, the question is, is what should the local unit government do? Since there's more, again, unanswered questions than there are, are answered questions, how do you begin to prepare? And the first item we encourage you is to go slow. Uh, you don't need to make any decisions today. Um, take some time and wait for more information to come out. Um, also, don't assume that the numbers that you've seen is what you're going to get. As Eric mentioned, villages were not included in many of the estimates that you've seen. Um, there may be also some adjustments to the actual dollars that will be coming to the state under each of those buckets. And so there are a lot of changes that could be happening. So don't rely on any information that you may have seen to this, this point. Uh, uh, thus, again, it's important just to slow down. Um, also, for some local units of government, these funds will be a pretty large impact for them. But also keep in mind, for some local units of government, it's going to be a much smaller portion of their budgets. And so uh, just because you may have seen some articles about how big these dollars are, again, recognizing that um, for different jurisdictions, it's going to uh, have different levels of impact. For now, we recommend you to start out um, with making sure that you have a strategic plan or updating your strategic plan. Planning is crit uh, critical, it's crucial in this process. Now is the opportunity to take the time to identify your community's priorities. Uh, you certainly are gonna have department heads, businesses, residents, potentially all asking for different projects under these dollars. Having a well thought out strategic plan will help you make those decisions in the upcoming months. Uh, uh, consistent with uh, working in local government, we all understand that transparency is important. There's gonna be a lot of attention on how our local units of government spend these dollars. So make sure you're using your public processes. Uh, make sure you're reaching out to your stakeholders so they all understand how you intend to potentially use this money. Hold your public uh, meetings and public hearings, discuss in newsletters, use public input tools, et cetera. So that again, those the, that you're being transparent and upfront of how we're using these dollars. Also, when you're looking at this, making sure that you're looking at the long-term um, uses of these dollars. Um, the act identifies that this money does not have to be spent until the end of 2024. And so that you, you have time. Um, you need to be thinking again about this as not as a one-year allocation, but really an allocation over the next several years. With the uncertainty ahead, we don't know what revenues will be for our local units of government. So potentially there could be multiple years of loss of revenues. And again, this money potentially will need to be used to help make up those losses over the next uh, two or three years. So again, think about long-term. Also make sure you're thinking about this from a transformative state. Um, while this is one-time money, um, it is a good opportunity to think about how you can transform uh, your local unit of government uh, moving forward. We want you to also encourage you to think about stability, your fiscal stability. 
Start reviewing your fund balances. Start looking at your potential loss of revenues over the next few years, like I discussed. Um, and looking at where your reserves are and how you might position your local government to continue to plan for these uh, uh, unexpected events that may occur. Um, while it might be nice to spend the money on a one-time project, such as a splash pad or a dog park or hiring new staff, recognize that these one-time expenses have long-term costs associated with them. So you wanna make sure that you're able to not only use this money here in the short term, but you're also able to uh, continue to fund any of the expenses that you use this money for going forward. Like all federal dollars, um, there's going to be an expectation of some type of documentation. At this point, we don't know exactly what those requirements are gonna be, but just like you heard in Eric's presentations about the CARES Act, where a number of local units of government were randomly selected for additional audits and reviews, you can expect that going forward that this may be the case for this, these dollars as well. And as such, making sure that you are documenting how you're using the money. Uh, related to the documentation would be uh, preparing for a single audit. Uh, we will have more communities than ever, which will uh, be required to have a single audit this year or in the, in the coming years as they accept these dollars. Um, so uh, making sure that you're prepared and understand what a single audit is. At our last updates and resources webinar, as well as our last chart chat, uh, we had a presentation on the single audit. I would anticipate that we will provide more information in upcoming webinars as well. Uh, one of the things to keep in mind with single audit is not just that you may have to do a single audit, but if you are accepting federal dollars, there are certain uh, policies and procedures that you must have in place. So make sure you become aware of what those requirements are before you begin to accept these dollars as they come through. So again, bringing this together, um, use this as an opportunity to position your community for the future. These funds provide an extremely unique situation. With uncertain times, we wanna put the focus on your long-term fiscal stability. Good decisions today will pay dividends for, dividends for decades to come. Um, so again, uh, at the end here, we'll provide another link to uh, the survey. So if you have more questions, we wanna gather those so we can uh, continue to provide the information that you need as a local government. And I'll turn it back over to Heather. Thank you, Rod and Eric, for providing those updates and important information. Now I would like to turn and introduce our next speaker, Derek Larson. Derek is the Acting Deputy Chief Security Officer for DTMB. He will be providing an overview about what local governments need to know about cybersecurity. I will turn it over to Derek at this time. All right, thank you very much, Heather. Uh... So I tried turning on my camera and there's a huge uh, bright spot behind me, so I'll go without today. Uh, but I was asked to come today to discuss uh, cybersecurity broadly. Uh, so uh, there are gonna be two parts of the presentation. The first part is talking about uh, cybersecurity, uh, what it means and best practices, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the second part is going to be uh, what the state of Michigan has to offer in terms of assisting counties, localities, school districts, so on and so forth in responding to cybersecurity threats. So if we can go to the next slide. All right, so the way that I'm sure surprising absolutely no on the way we've been talking about this lately is uh, in the context of COVID-19, comparing COVID-19 
uh, as a pandemic to cybersecurity and uh, computer viruses. So it does provide a perhaps overused, but still useful way to talk about this. Uh, next slide. All right, so, you know, what is, what is a common virus, you know, a, a, a virus that we face like COVID-19? Looks for hosts, infects, duplicates, spreads, uh, depending on uh, the host, uh, you know, well, depending on the virus, it can be either very serious, very threatening, or not so serious. Also, depending on the host can uh, impact whether it's a serious threat or non-serious threat. Go to the next slide. It's a lot of the same things. A computer virus is a small piece of code that fuses with other programs or files. It infects, it seeks to duplicate, um, and then depending on the virus, it may be a very serious virus or it may be a more uh, damaging one. And then depending on the context it finds itself in, it could either be a minor annoyance or it could take down an application, a system or a network. Uh, next slide. So obviously one of the things we're all familiar with in terms of how to combat uh, health threats is that uh, we issue a lot of guidance. How do you handle food safely? What's trash collection? Uh, what is uh, personal hygiene in terms of protecting yourself? Uh, and making sure that different levels of government are putting out uh, information and resources so that people understand both the current context of the threat and the ways they can protect themselves. We go to the next slide. Uh, we can see that we do a lot of that in the cybersecurity space as well. Uh, what are best practices? How can you protect yourself from certain types of threats and other types of threats? What should you have in place to uh, defend yourself proactively? What can you do if something does happen? Uh, and those come from private organizations such as uh, PCI and CIS, uh, as well as government organizations such as IRS and NIST. Uh, next slide. So obviously the big difference between biological viruses and computer viruses is that computer viruses are designed to cause harm. They are designed with a particular outcome in mind. Uh, next slide. So, I mean, a lot of this isn't new, isn't new information to people. Who are the threat actors who are creating these, uh, these computer viruses? Cyber criminals, nation state actors, activists, disgruntled employees, or just people with compromised accounts. And what they're doing with it, sometimes it's for financial gain, uh, sometimes it's to have influence, sometimes it's for revenge, um, sometimes it's espionage. Um, and they're after passwords, they're after credentials, they're after information, they're after data, they're after anything they can use to further their goals, which are uh, to build some sort, of, is to have some sort of impact, such as stealing an identity uh, so that they can gain access to funds or so that they can take some sort of governmental action. Uh, next. So one of the things that comes up a lot is we hear the term virus used a great deal. Um, virus is often used as kind of a catch-all terms for uh, malicious cybersecurity threats, uh, which is fine. You know, there is a technical definition, but that's generally how it, what people are using it very broadly. So if we go to the next slide, we can see that in terms of what actual cybersecurity threats are out there, there are a lot of different ones. It's not singular. You can see why there's an appeal to just calling everything a virus. Uh, there's ransomware, which we're very familiar with, or browser hijacking or backdoors. Uh, but there are also things we don't see as often, such as people may be less familiar with what worms or a Trojan horse is, 
or what keystroke logging is. Uh, but you know, this is just showing that there are a lot of different types of threats out there. There are a lot of different, what we call threat vectors. Um, and as we continue to, uh, to grow in terms of the technology we use, there will be new threats that continue to pop up. Uh, next slide. So these are just some broad categories of cybersecurity actions. Again, some of these are ones you'll see when something happens, you'll see it on the news. Uh, others are less commonly used, but social engineering obviously is something we're all familiar with. It's when uh, someone's trying to trick you into doing something you shouldn't. So phishing is obviously um, a well-known uh, version of social engineering. Someone's sending you, for instance, an email that's asking you to click a malicious link. You shouldn't, but they're trying to convince you you should either because of what it says it's sending you to, who the email pretends to be from, that kind of thing. Uh, denial of service, we often hear about distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks when systems are flooded with traffic so that people can't access it. Uh, remote access actually recently came up down in Florida at the Oldsmar Water Treatment Facility where someone gained remote access to the water treatment uh, system and started increasing the chemical levels. Uh, and then web browsers and, and uh, web servers, they're, those are exploiting uh, unpatched vulnerabilities uh, to, again, influence behavior and take actions. Uh, next. Uh, so one of the things that uh, we generally try and bring up in these, because uh, it's overlooked, is that cybersecurity threats isn't just about uh, you know, running antivirus programs. Physical security is a huge part of cybersecurity. Um, you know, it becomes a cyber, it becomes a cybersecurity threat when somebody steals a laptop or a workstation. Um, it's one of the reasons that badging is so important in terms of people having badges to show that they belong in a certain building, room, area, uh, and why actually scanning those uh, badges is very important so that we can track who's going in and out of areas. We can limit access uh, and we can understand who, uh, or and we can track um, that sometimes against the computer files if we see uh, concerning behavior. Uh, but you know, one of the big things that we often, uh, that we often note is piggybacking, which is, um, you know, using, using that best practice in terms of having, uh, of having access restricted to a certain area through badging, people then letting other people in. You know, we all want to be uh, friendly. We all want to be courteous. So we hold that door open after we've scanned our badge so someone else doesn't have to. That does create a new threat because somebody now has physical access to computers and systems or servers. Um, and that can lead to cybersecurity issues down the road. So obviously goes without saying COVID-19 we've seen a lot has changed the playing field quite a bit. Um, you know, people are working from home, they're using uh, personal, they're using, you know, personal devices, uh, they're using wireless to connect from the houses. Um, and a lot of times those aren't as secure as what we have in the office. Um, either, you know, it's again, personal equipment uh, or it's, you know, their home Wi-Fi that may not be password protected. Uh, so it's kind of opened us up to new vulnerabilities and presented new challenges. Uh, next slide. So, you know, again, aside from those two, um, the issues of people, you know, for us, one of the big things was people went home and they felt the need, they really needed to print stuff out. Uh, so connecting home printers and non-work devices to their state of Michigan computers. 
Um, you know, we tried to secure things by having people use VPN access uh, to remotely uh, act to securely access their uh, the systems remotely. A lot of people don't like VPN; they find it annoying um, or a hassle. Um, and then you also had people trying to learn how to use some of these technologies. Um, the you know, we had actually just uh, not too long before we all went home. Um, we had just made the switch over to Microsoft Teams. So we had people who are still trying to learn how to use the enterprise technology uh, and they are now having to do it for all of their meetings. So uh, it's, uh, there's been a learning curve for people and we've had to, again, you know, encounter new issues that we hadn't necessarily anticipated a year and a half ago. And this is just showing, you know, some of the threats we're currently facing. You know, one of the big things is as much as we used our mobile devices before, we're using them even more now. And that's a major threat vector in terms of uh, malicious applications, in terms of uh, information security. If you can click one more time, you can see some more numbers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna read out these numbers, but you can see that uh, mobile device security is a major issue. And a lot of people use their uh, mobile devices for conducting business. Uh, conducting personal affairs, um, using them for uh, wireless hotspots. So uh, they're, they're ubiquitous in our everyday uh, lives, but they are uh, a major threat vector. Next slide. Yeah, and so, and next slide. We have a great person who likes doing animations. Um, but um, so you can see that uh, even if we take certain steps, Cities, counties, uh, you know, they're under attack. Uh, we've seen, we see it every day on the news. Uh, we at the state of Michigan uh, see, uh, you know, have seen an increase in the calls for help that we've gotten to assist local entities who have been, uh, who have faced computer, uh, computer emergencies over the last year. Um, so, you know, county, local governments, they're a target. Next, uh, next slide. So again, you know, this harkens back to earlier when we were talking about, uh, about COVID-19 limiting the spread of that. Uh, we can also prevent the spread of malware through a lot of things we saw earlier, developing policies and standards, getting guidance out there, um, monitoring threats, and um, making sure that we're deploying, we're deploying both technology and educational resources so that people can, uh, you know, can take it into their own hands to defend themselves. Next slide. So this is actually one of the things that we pushed out to first state agencies and then a lot of our county and local partners out there, which is just kind of what are the basic steps that can be taken to better protect organizations uh, you know, during COVID-19 and really any time uh, in, you know, in terms of cybersecurity in a digital environment. So being careful what you click, password management, mobile device safety, uh, backing up files, installing updates, and staying cautious on social media. I mean, I'm sure many of you are looking at this going, well, of course, we, we hear that all the time. And it, it's true. Um, a lot of these things that uh, are applied in our personal lives are also what keep our organizational systems and networks up and running, keep them safe. Um, so, you know, these, these seem like basic steps, but they're very important parts of the blocking and tackling to, uh, to improve cybersecurity in the state of Michigan.
So this is a slide that we often use uh, in one of the groups we all talk about in a moment, but this just shows how much space we have to cover in terms of uh, cybersecurity in the state of Michigan. You know, all of these counties, city, villages, townships, school districts, they all have uh, computer networks, they all have systems, they all have applications. Uh, so it's a very large footprint. We would refer to it as the digital ecosystem um, because even though we have all these different little pieces, the ways that they interact uh, mean that vulnerabilities in one spot become a vulnerability in all. So we work hard at the state of Michigan to try and um, to try and help secure everybody. And to do that, we have some of the following programs. So Cyber Partners is actually where we got that slide you just saw from. Uh, so Cyber Partners is run by uh, DTMB Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection, uh, and specifically Michigan Cybersecurity. Um, that focuses on uh, collaboration and coordination between the state of Michigan uh, and government resources and county and local governments and schools. Um, so it grew out of what used to be the CISO as a service program. Um, and now it's a place where we share information, we uh, threat analysis, um, all the kind of information that we can to try and help counties and localities uh, keep themselves safe in a cybersecurity sense. Uh, so we have you know, advice and support, we try and do educational programs. Uh, as I said, there's State of Michigan, MCS folks, uh, Michigan State Police, the National Guard, uh, DHS from the federal level is there. So we make sure that we're incorporating all those different pieces um, so that we can provide uh, the best information possible to counties and localities. We also have this other part, which is response and recovery. So we often talk about left of boom, right of boom. Left of boom is before something happens. And that's where uh, best practices come in. That's where threat intelligence comes in, trying to prevent something from happening. Well, as you saw on one of our earlier slides, no matter what you do, there's always the chance something could happen. And we do have resources available for that. You see that in the response recovery, which uh, is MIC3, which I'll talk about in a second, but uh, contacting the Michigan State Police and having a resource for counties and localities should something go wrong. So if we go to the next slide, this is just our landing page. For anyone on this call who wants to join Cyber Partners, uh, they can either go to the website, www.michigan.gov slash cyberpartners, uh, or they can reach out to me or, or any of the other folks on this call and they can put you in contact with me. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. Um, it's a great way to get information. It's a great way to connect with other people facing similar issues and just get uh, access to news and information. Go to the next slide. Michigan Cyber Civilian Corps. Um, so this is part of that response piece. Um, the Michigan Civilian, and if you click down more, I think we, there are two more bullets. Three more. Um, so uh, the Michigan Cyber Civilian Corps is a reserve corps cybersecurity incident response professionals from across the state. Um, so, uh, you know, it's often come up that there's a lot more, that a lot of people go into cybersecurity in the private sector because it pays well, it, uh, you know, there's additional flexibilities there. Uh, the MIC3 provides a way for private sector cybersecurity professionals or county and local uh, cybersecurity professionals to help respond to certain types of emergencies. So for uh, counties, localities, school districts, or critical infrastructure, uh, if something goes wrong, 
uh, you can call the Michigan State Police and ask for the Michigan Cyber Civilian Corps, and we will deploy a team of volunteers to help uh, understand what the problem is and then help mitigate it. Um, so this includes both something bad has happened, uh, you know, we're suffering from a DDoS attack or we've got a ransomware infection uh, to we became aware of a vulnerability that could be very dangerous to our system and we don't know how to fix it. Um, so this is a resource that uh, counties and localities can call upon to get assistance in those cases. Um, and we do have over 80 MIC3 members from around the state. Um, during COVID, we've, most of our uh, deployments have been remote. Um, we've had you know, 10 people on the phone uh, providing advice, doing analysis, uh, but there have been instances where we've also had to deploy on, per, uh, on premises. So you know, we followed health procedures and sent people on site to start working through machines and help patching uh, devices. So it's, um, it's a great program. It's a great way to give people an opportunity to engage, um, but it also provides the state with a great deal more capacity to help protect, as I was talking about earlier, the Michigan digital ecosystem. And also uh, recently we deployed the Michigan Secure Mobile Security application. So this is a free app, a free to user app uh, that is available to Michigan residents uh, that you can download in the uh, Apple or uh, Google Play stores. Um, it is a locally based app. So uh, it doesn't, so it's just on your device. It doesn't pipe data anywhere, uh, but it warns you when suspicious activity is detected on your device. Uh, it protects without collecting, as I said, protects without collecting or transmitting any personal information and was developed by a company that specialized in mobile threat defense. Um, so this is getting, this is trying to combat the problem we, uh, that I was talking about earlier in terms of the increasing use of and threat to mobile devices. Uh, this was uh, based on a program that we saw in New York City uh, where they deployed a very similar app um, and this is our attempt to try and better secure individual users um, to better secure the state as a whole. Let me go to the next slide. So this is where you can go to, so you, know, you can see it on the Michigan.gov Michigan uh, website that you can link there to the Google Play or, uh, or Apple app stores. Um, but again, it's just another way that the state of Michigan is trying to help protect residents uh, and you know, we're finding that uh, small businesses and even some local governments are using the app as well. Um, it's not a replacement for you know a more uh, for a larger, more thorough mobile security application, but it's a good start and it does provide a level of awareness that people don't necessarily otherwise have. So we're really excited about Michigan Secure. Um, but I think, but in terms of yeah. So questions, that, that should hopefully give you an overview about just the services and the capabilities we're trying to provide to uh, county and local governments. And I'll turn it back to Heather. Thank you, Derek. We will now start the question and answer portion of the webinar. Um, we'll begin with some questions that you pre-submitted before the webinar and segue um, to some questions presented in today's chat bar. I would like to introduce Judy Allen, Director of the Government Relations for the Michigan Townships Association, Dina Basworth, Director of Government Relations from the Michigan Association of Counties, 
and Chris Hackbarth, Director of State and Federal Affairs for the Michigan Municipal League, who will present us with those questions. I will turn it over to Judy to ask the first question. Thanks, Heather. And I just want to thank everybody, uh, the presenters. This information has been very good. And I think the updates on the different programs out there were extremely helpful. You know, I saw a lot of questions in the chat box going back and forth. So thank you. And um, we are all waiting for those unknowns with the questions on the American Rescue Plan Act. But um, the first question that I was asked to talk about was the Open Meetings Act and the in-person meeting limited to 25 people. And that is correct. Uh, under the OMA right now, the, and that only goes until March 30th, the act does sunset this specific provision that electronic meetings are allowed for any reason for public bodies and for the public. However, that will end as of March 30th. There is a DHHS order out there that does allow public bodies or indoor meetings, I should restate that, indoor meetings to exist with no more than 25 individuals at that indoor meeting. You also have to make sure that you are doing the proper social distancing um, and spacing requirements as well. The mask wearing is also required. What happens after April 20th or April 20th, we are not certain yet. That will depend on the next DHHS order. For the OMA, the Open Meetings Act, March 31st through December 31st of this year, individuals of a public body may only participate electronically in per, um, versus in-person meeting if, if their absence is due to military duty, uh, a medical condition, or the third option is if there's a declaration of a state or local emergency. So if there is a local, meaning a county or a local unit declares a state of emergency, then you would be able to have all members would be able to participate electronically. And then the last part of the OMA provision says beginning January 1st, 2022, the only option for a member to participate electronically in a meeting of a public body is if the member of that public body is absent due to military duty. So we don't expect the legislature at this point based on our conversations to extend that March 30th uh, ability. And we are waiting to see what else may come from DHHS. So with that, I'll go to the second question. And Rod, I think this one's directed to you. Will there be a chart of account guidance? And I'm assuming this is for the American Rescue Plan Act for posting funds in the general ledger. Yes, thank you. Um, just like we did under the CARES Act, Treasury released a number letter to provide some additional guidance on how to receive and record funds associated with the American Recovery Act. Uh, we're currently reviewing that. Um, we think it's going to be very similar to our previous guidance, but because it's going to cover multiple fiscal years, we're going to have to make a few adjustments. So we anticipate something coming out here in the next several months that provides uh, that appropriate guidance, again, for use of chart of accounts and recording as associated with the American Recovery Act. Thank you. So Dina, do we wanna to go to you for questions now? I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. That was a wonderful presentation. I wanna first say thank you. Um, I, I personally got out a lot, a lot out of it and I'm sure everybody on the call did as well. Um, I know you're looking for additional guidance from the American Rescue Plan 
and what can be spent and what can't be spent. Um, I also I posted in the chat a letter uh, the National Association of Counties submitted asking for additional guidance as well. I think they were very successful in um, surveying uh, you know our members as like you're surveying all of us um, for questions that need to be answered for that guidance. So hopefully we'll get some soon. Um, Rod, I got to tell you, having a strategic plan that was great advice. I hope everybody on the call listened to that. And it's going to make those financial decisions that you're going to make that much easier. So thank you for that. First question is, um, and this has to do with the um, IT infrastructure. Are there any federal programs for cybersecurity that will help any, any grant programs out there? Uh, yeah, so there are some. So uh, there are grant programs through DHS and FEMA um, that uh, counties and localities can apply for uh, to get funds through there. Also, uh, you know, part of the larger conversation that we heard today about how funds are being used, um, there is a large pot of money that was set aside in uh, in recent legislation that uh, is earmarked specifically for cybersecurity. Um, and so we are like uh, like uh, my colleagues. Uh, we are still waiting to hear how that's going to impact state and local cybersecurity. Um, we're talking with DHS, we're talking to the US Department of Treasury, um, trying to figure out what that's going to look like in terms of guidance. Um, and once we know, we'll be making sure to put that information out uh, to our partners and to everyone else to make sure that they understand what's available. Wonderful, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, next question is, from the American Rescue Plan, um, and, I, and I think you pretty much answered this, but the question is, are the funds restricted? And then when will we know how much each local unit is gonna receive? Yeah, so for the American Rescue Plan Act, um, you know, we're all still in the same boat of waiting for guidance. Uh, I know we've asked our federal partners when we might be getting more information um, hopefully the, for the entitlement communities and for the counties, um, that information will be coming uh, sooner. I think for the non-entitlement communities, um, they'll need to uh, wait until the state uh, appropriates the money and we see exactly what the boilerplate uh, enacting that uh, looks like. So unfortunately, I don't have a timeline that we can, we can provide. Okay, okay. Um, and that's what we've been telling everyone too. We, we just have to wait. I know, you know, we have elected officials who are ready to figure out how to allocate the funds and you don't quite know when you're going to get or when you're going to get it or how much you're going to get um, and what the restrictions are. So the last question I have is, do dispensaries on tribal land pay fees? This is back to the marijuana issue. They pay fees to either the county or the township in which they're located? I, I have no idea. Um, so they would pay uh, the excise tax to the state. Um, that is one area that I know we've talked to um, the um, marijuana regulatory agency about, um, and there uh, may be some statutory changes uh, to that act um, that are being discussed. Um, but at this point, um, for the distributions, um, there for the the dispensaries on tribal lands. Um, there is no county or municipality allocation for those. 
Um, there are discussions about changing the act uh, to provide for that, um, but that may also require uh, amending some of the, the tribal compacts that the state has with those sovereign, sovereign tribal nations. Okay, great, thank you. Um, Heather, that concludes my questions and I think it goes to Chris next. Awesome, thank you, Dina. Always good to hear your cheerful voice. Thank you everybody for joining today. Just uh, following up with a few questions, Eric, I know um, we've had a lot in, in the chat, uh, the public safety, public health payroll programs, obviously been lingering a little longer than, than everyone anticipated. Could you give us one, uh, I know folks are looking for the link you mentioned, you have, uh, you have estimates that are updated right now on that. Can you also tell us as you're looking at those final payments, about how much is still to be distributed? And are there any federal timelines with regard to when those dollars have to be out? I know there are original deadlines with CARES Act funding originally. Yeah, great question. So um, I think we just posted uh, the link to that uh, document in the chat. Um, so local units of government can go in and look and see uh, what those final proration payments were. Uh, I think there's about 40 million left roughly to distribute. Um, there are also a number of uh, local units of government um, that were entitled to less than what their initial payment was. Uh, so they'll have to return some funding. Um, and that, that's something that we'll have to work through. Um, in, to the second point, part of your question, um, uh, there is not a, a timeline on the federal side for uh, exactly when we have to get those out. Um, I believe the deadline for the CARES Act was pushed uh, until December of this year, and we hope to be out far before that. Uh, but like you said, I know this has lingered uh, much further than uh, what anybody hoped. And if people have questions on the allocation estimates you have there, email your staff. Yeah, email the, the treasure care box would be a, a great place to start uh, and reach out to us, certainly. I mean, that's part of the reason uh, why we've posted these um, because they're prorated to 200 million. Once we make those final payments, um, we're not going to have any funding left for corrections. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that everybody vets those and we have the, all the questions answered. Awesome. Um, just with regard to, um, I, there were some questions I noticed in the box as we talked about. Uh, uh, eligible manufacturing personal property and, and personal property tax reimbursements that are going out this year. Um, I know we did some changes, uh, I believe it was last year now, uh, with regard to an error correction period. Uh, do, you, do you know when that time period is for reviewing uh, uh, with the county the assessed values for communities? I don't know that one off the top of my head. I'll have to follow up with staff on that, sorry. Okay. Uh, we'll try to follow up with uh, that information. Awesome. Um, and then last but not least, I know as we talk about, about villages and uh, the American Rescue Plan Act, I know from the league's perspective, uh, it's our understanding that all villages, if you are a, a community, village community, uh, there is an expectation from RN that all local units are to receive uh, and in that non-entitlement uh, pot uh, on a per capita basis. As everybody has said, these are Pure estimates from a congressional from the congressional committee so far, and we are all waiting. I know from our end uh, as well for for those changes. And we've expressed that municipal league has has expressed to U.S. Treasury 
the desire to have those estimates updated, those allocation estimates updated to include all of our villages as well. So look for that information to come. Uh, I can post in the chat as well. The National League of Cities has a, uh, a website up for, for their kind of central resource on this and, and upcoming guidance. I know we've had some questions from folks looking for guidance uh, and a lot of the questions as, as you guys presented today, there's a lot more that isn't known, um, but I do think there is a, an expectation and understanding at, at U.S. Treasury's level that the kind of rolling guidance that occurred last year with the CARES Act is not desirable, and, and I think they would like to try and get a, a more comprehensive set of guidance out to start with. So it may take a little more time, but hopefully will be a little more, uh, more all-encompassing so we don't have as many ongoing concerns and changing, changing uh, goalposts. And those are the questions I have, Heather. Thank you, Chris, Judy, and Dina. We have reached the end of the webinar. We hope that you found this information presented during today's webinar valuable to your community. We would like to thank our speakers and partners, MML, MTA, MAC, the County Road Association, and DTMB for participating in today's presentation. The PowerPoint presentation and recording from today's webinar will be available on Treasury's local government and school districts webinar webpage by tomorrow. As a reminder, we have posted a link in the chat bar for you to submit any specific questions regarding the American Recovery Act. And additionally, we would encourage all attendees to participate in the survey following today's presentation. This survey is used to generate ideas for future webinars and to ensure that we are discussing topics important to you. On behalf of our presenters and partners, we wanna thank you for joining us today at our Tools and Resources for Local Government webinar series. This concludes today's webinar presentation. Have a wonderful day and stay safe. Thank you. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.